We are concluding our studies uh, in the Beatitudes, and uh, we're focusing upon the last of these Beatitudes, and uh, we'll read together therefore Matthew chapter 5 once again, and the first 12 verses, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Jesus, of course, is preaching this amazing Sermon on the Mount, as it has become known to us, and It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely Say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same manner they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. And if it is the word of God, friends, it demands something of our time and attention this morning. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. May God add a blessing to his word. My goodness, our Lord went from hero to zero in less than a week. Less than a week. As a hero, he was welcomed as he approached Jerusalem, the holy city, in anticipation, of course, of the blessed feast that the Jewish people were going to celebrate. And they hailed him as a hero. And they welcomed him in in triumph. And there was a celebration. There was rejoicing. There was extraordinary anticipation at what the Lord Jesus Christ would accomplish for them, the Jews. They, of course, looked to him for deliverance. They considered the ultimate deliverance to be that of deliverance from the Roman Empire. <laughs> Jesus, of course, had a, had a higher matter in mind, didn't he? And he was thinking about their ultimate deliverance from sorrow and sin and shame. And perhaps because it didn't pan out the way they anticipated, in a matter of a few days, our Lord Jesus was in the midst of a persecution that for the most part we could only imagine. Jesus, on this occasion, this Sermon on the Mount, gave us this last of the eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the persecuted. Because of righteousness, that's important. Persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. William Barclay puts it, 
the bliss of the martyr's pain. One of the most illuminating and I think significant facts about the language of the early Christian church is that before the end of the first century AD, the Greek word for witness, martus, actually became used also as the word for martyr. <laughs> the word was used interchangeably. It was the same word. Its original meaning was, of course, in Greek, witness. But this is the word that came to mean martyr because at the time, the man, the woman of God, who was a witness unto Jesus Christ, had every chance, every chance of becoming a martyr. There are times in the New Testament when we do not know exactly how the original writers wanted this word to be understood. When they speak of martyrs, were they speaking of a witness unto Christ? Were they speaking of a martyr for Christ? Or was it kind of the same thing? In the letter to the church in Pergamum, John speaks of, in Revelation 2.13, Antipas, my faithful martyrs. The NIV translates that witness. It could be equally translated martyr. The Amplified Version puts it better, I think, in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed, martyred in your midst, where Satan dwells. He, she is blessed, says Jesus. When? Because you are a witness for me, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are persecuted. Even, even unto becoming a martyr. Now, brethren, let's be absolutely honest with each other this morning. We are every one of us wrestling, struggling with this dynamic, aren't we? Blessed, happy, happy are those who are persecuted. Come on, pastor, you're thinking you've lost your rocker. Happy are those who are persecuted. How then, how then can we speak of the blessedness of persecution? Well, I have five thoughts. There are more. I don't want to keep you here all day, and I'm probably over-prepared, but here goes. How can we speak of the blessedness of persecution? Well, firstly, might I suggest persecution for the sake of Christ is, in fact, a compliment. Persecution for the sake of Christ is, in fact, a compliment. To persecute someone is to show that we take them so seriously that we consider them to be a threat. And the best thing to do, therefore, to those who we consider to be a threat, is to persecute them. Ultimately, of course, to martyr them. I wonder, are we posing a threat to the kingdom of Satan? It troubles me, I'll be honest with you, 
When Christians say to me, Pastor, I find the Christian life easygoing all the time. A kind of triumphalistic theology that we're kind of inheriting from North America to some degree. Uh, Everything is wonderful and flowery and rosy in my garden all the time. I'm concerned. It might be that you're posing absolutely no threat whatsoever to Satan's kingdom. And thus he and his demonic host are quite happy, thank you, to leave you be in your state of utter delusion. But brethren, if we are persecuted for the sake of the kingdom of God, for righteousness' sake, then it's a compliment. It means that the enemy has spotted you and recognizes in you a threat to his kingdom, recognizes in you someone who is positively impacting the kingdom of God, someone who perhaps is sowing the seeds of the gospel and reaping a wonderful harvest of righteousness. And Satan thinks, "Hmm, that's no good at all. I'm going to send them a dose of persecution. Rejoice, says Jesus. And be glad when you're persecuted for my sake. It means that you're doing something right in your Christian life. It means that you're going in the right direction for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. It means you're posing a threat. It's a compliment. William Barclay says persecution only comes to the man or woman whose life is so positive and real in its effectiveness that society regards them as a danger. There's no question, my friends, in the first century AD, the Roman Empire considered the Christian church to be a danger. That's why the likes of the Emperor Nero, for instance, spent his his entire life persecuting the church. He considered them to be a danger. It's a compliment, my friends, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The flip side is, if you are not persecuted, if life is far too easy for you, if the enemy is not on your back in any way, shape, or form, I wonder, are you where you really ought to be as a child of God? Or does the enemy consider you to be absolutely no threat? This leaves you be in your state of delusion. Secondly, persecution. It presents us with an opportunity to demonstrate loyalty. Arguably, it's easy to be loyal to Christ and to his church when things are going well. Wouldn't you agree? Much, much less easy to be loyal (laughs) when life is difficult. For the early Christian, the first century Christian church, they were, of course, ruled physically by the Roman Empire. And therefore, it was incumbent upon every single citizen within the Roman Empire to once a year lay an offering to Caesar, or a burnt incense to Caesar, and say, Caesar is Lord. Once a year. 
And if you did that, you got a certificate. You got a certificate to say you'd done it, and you, with that certificate, work, you could trade, you could function normally. Just once a year. The Roman Empire were, weren't too uh, difficult to deal with, because after that they said you could please yourself for your worship, for the most part. And so the Christians were faced with this dilemma. To whom would they be loyal? Was it worth it just once a year to save all the hassle, all the persecution? Was it worth it just to once a year to say, Caesar is Lord? Get it out of the way. Then for the other 364 or five days, you'd be fine. No, 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 no. You see, the early Christian church could never declare anyone but Christ to be Lord. They had to choose. To whom were they going to be loyal? And of course, they chose to be loyal to Jesus. Now, we're all placed in circumstances and situations at times, aren't we, as Christians, when we have to choose to whom are we going to be loyal? Maybe we're out and about with our mates from work or college or whatever, and there's a bit of a there's a bit of banter, a bit of laughter, a bit of dirty language, a bit of dirty jokes being told. We have to make a choice. To whom are we going to be loyal? Are we going to enter into the banter after all? It's every once in a while. There's no harm in it, is there really? Or are we going to be loyal to Jesus? We're going to stand and say, Listen, no, 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 no. You used my Lord's name in vain then. That offended me. No, 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 I'm not going to enter into your, your silly little dirty joke scenarios. They, they offend me. Who are we going to be loyal to? Maybe we're at the gym and uh, somebody points a finger and says, Hi, you, you go to that church, don't you? Coid, coid, pen, something church. <laughs> you go there, don't you? Who are you going to be loyal to? Amidst all those big muscle-bound beefy souls, the temptation, oh, I don't really go there. I don't really go there. Mum drags me along every now. Are you going to be loyal to Jesus? My friends, persecution is an opportunity to demonstrate our loyalty. It is when things become difficult that there comes the acid test of the loyalty of the Christian. Persecution gives us, as Christians, the opportunity to show to whom we belong. Were we going to nail our colors, my friends? Because inevitably, to display our loyalty to Jesus will attract criticism, misunderstanding, persecution. Thirdly, to be persecuted is to walk in the way of the saints, the prophets, and the martyrs. My friends, you're in good company. You're in good company. When you embrace persecution for righteousness sake. Jesus says, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To be amongst the persecuted friends is to have the thrill of knowing that you are one of the great company of those whose names are on the honor roll of faith. Honor rolls. In my previous school, in uh, just outside Liverpool, Cowley High School, it was a, a rugby union mad school. Didn't play football. <sighs> Anybody seen with a round ball in Cowley High? <laughs> 
would have got the slipper. They did in those days as well. And they used to have, because it was a, a, a school with a great rugby union tradition, they used to have an honour roll as you entered the main reception area of the school. A huge, huge board honour roll of who were the captains of the teams of, of, of times gone by who'd, create, who'd, who'd met some with great success. Wonderful. And I, I longed to get my name on that honour roll. Do you know what happened to it? In 1989, the school was knocked down and the honour roll was burned. I finally got my name on it. <laughs> I was captain of the, the, the first 15 of uh, the, six, the lower six rugby team that won the, the Champions Cup in Liverpool at that time. I got my name on the honour roll. The honour roll was burned. Burned. My friends, don't strive to get your name on any other honor roll except the one that is in eternity. There you will join the names of all the faithful martyrs, the faithful witnesses of Christ of old. There's an honor roll that will matter, not just in time, but for eternity. Persecution, my friends, is blessed because we walk in the way of the saints, the prophets, and the martyrs who were before us. Fourthly, persecution is a good thing. Because it produces perseverance in the Christian faith. Huh? You'd think the opposite would be true, wouldn't you? You'd think the opposite would be To be persecuted, you would think, would, would, would discourage one from going on in the faith. No, 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 no. If history tells us anything, history tells us that those who are persecuted for the sake of Christ actually go on in the faith in strength after strength after strength. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippian church, says, Philippians 1.12, Now I want you to know, brothers, sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He says, what had happened to him? Well, he was in chains. He was in prison for the sake of Christ. Verse 14, he says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Persecution, friends, produced perseverance. Now, I know it seems ridiculous to suggest thus, but actually persecution encourages the growth of the Christian church and the extension of God's kingdom. By way of example, China is one of the world's last strongholds of communism. And it is still ruled by an atheistic, anti-Christian regime. Now, of course, Chinese leaders claim that the Chinese people have freedom of religion. But that's not, not the case. There are two different kinds of church movements in China. There's the official state-registered three-self-church, as it is called. And there is the underground, unregistered church. Millions, millions of house church Christians say that the government's claim of religious freedom is a lie. You see, they don't want to be a part of the state-registered church because of the liberalism that they're embracing. And so they decide to go underground, as it were. 
and to, to worship God uh, in a secret sense. And they are persecuted because of this righteousness. The reality is that many Chinese Christians are suffering for their faith because of that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll pledge loyalty to Jesus before they'll pledge loyalty to the Communist Party. However, however, the church in China grows. And it grows at such a rate that the statisticians are struggling to keep up with statistics that we can, we can trust. In a recent article in the Open Doors magazine concerning the underground churches in China, it said this, I quote, The government crackdown on the unregistered house churches has recently took the form of concentrated and vicious attacks by the Public Security Bureau, the secret police. House churches which refused to register were raided, shut down or set on fire. Christian men and women who wouldn't stop preaching were arrested, tortured, imprisoned and even murdered. Chinese Christians who distributed Bibles around the country were dragged away, beaten, and interrogated. Yet, the church in China continues to grow. Listen, estimates of the number of Christians in China today range from a conservative 150 million to over 250 million evangelical Christians. You say, how? How can that happen to a church that's persecuted? Well, persecution, my friends, produces perseverance. It is a catalyst for growth. I was touched by the words of an itinerant evangelist in China who says, I quote, We have never prayed for God to stop the persecution because it helps us to spread the gospel. <laughs> Hallelujah. I wonder whether we would be of the same mindset. Billy Campbell sent me a, a link just recently from Release International. Billy Campbell, you're familiar with him. He, he ministers through Silk Road Ministries to limited access in limited access countries. He says, Release International, an agency reporting on the persecuted church, recently issued some amazing statistics. Listen to these statistics. That only 30% of Christian believers worldwide live in a so-called Western free world. The other 70% of worldwide Christians live in limited access or closed countries where communism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism hold sway. Now, would you, Adam and, believe, Adam and Eve, believe it? Would you really? 70% of the Christian church worldwide live in limited access or closed countries where persecution is rife, is the norm. Release International estimates that around the world, a staggering 450 to 500 Christians are martyred every day. Huh? You don't get that on BBC very often, do you? 450 to 500 Christian martyrs Every day. Friends, I've worked that out. and My math isn't good. Kate's working out for me. It's around about three martyrs. Let me figure that out now. Every day. 
It's about one martyr every three minutes. One martyr every three minutes. That's close enough, isn't it? Now, we've been here now just over an hour. Figure it out, Kate. How many, how many martyrs? How ma- no pressure. You're the teacher. How many martyrs? Oh, you're the mathematics teacher. Come on. We've been here, say, 64 minutes. How many martyrs have there been for the sake of the kingdom since we've been sat here? How many? 20. I rest my case. And do you think those 20 have been missed in the context? Well, yes, they have. But the church continues to grow. While here in the free West, oh, we have it so easy, don't we? The free West, we're represented only by 30% of the Christian church. One of my spiritual heroes, I don't mind telling the story, if I've told it before, is Richard Wormbrand. He was a Romanian pastor during the time that communism was rife in Romania. And he and his wife were thrown into prison by the communists. And their nine-year-old son was hauled off to a government school that he might be indoctrinated in Marxist and atheistic thought. Some years later, as a method of psychological torture for the parents, the boy was brought to see his mother. He was to deny Christ. In the face of his mother. How cruel a regime is that? They brought the boy in. They sat him down in front of his mother. And the boy studded the marks of suffering and persecution. That were written all over his mother's face. But he also studied the sense of joy that flooded her heart. And he looked his mum in the eye and he says, Mother... If Christ means this much to you, then I want him too. Persecution produces perseverance. And the Christian church grows. Fifthly, quickly, persecution promotes partnership. The Apostle Paul, often in his epistles, referred to the fact, the reality, that as a consequence of his chains, the church of Jesus Christ was encouraged to stick together, encouraged to grow. He says in Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, remember he's in chains. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Persecution, friends, brings Christians together like nothing else can. Because they need each other. It is difficult enough to face persecution from the outside the Christian church without having to endure internal conflict. We need each other. Persecution brings Christians together. A sense of solidarity, a sense of common ground, a sense of standing on the same foundation that is already laid, that is Christ. I wonder why at times Christians and Christian churches are always wrangling and always complaining and always moaning, always wrestling and always all that sense of disharmony. We have it too easy, you see. 
We have too many other peripheral issues to worry about. And we're, 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 we're taking our eyes off the central issue. That is Christ. Exodus chapter 17. There's an amazing story. You'll know it well. The Amalekites. A pagan people. Came against God's people Israel. In a valley called Rephidim. In the face of persecution and trial and difficulty, God's people came together in unity. And I, frankly, don't know anything comparable to this situation. Did they panic? Did they wrangle amongst themselves? Did they, did they argue amongst themselves? Not, not, not a whiff of it. They came together. Joshua, of course, was commanded to to lead the armies of Israel against the Amalekites whilst the man of God Moses went up onto the mountain overlooking the valley and with him Aaron and Er and whilst the man of God held his arms aloft towards heaven and Joshua and the Israelites were in the ascendancy but the man of God grew tired now there's a reality men, women of God grow tired what should we do when such men, women grow tired? Should we stand back and criticize? Mm, they weren't up to the job, were they? <laughs> they weren't as good as they thought they were, were they? No, we should do as Aaron and Er did. What did they do? They sat Moses down on a rock with Aaron on one side, Er on the other side of Moses. They lifted his arms, they held his arms for him aloft until daybreak, and the battle was won. Persecution brought the people of Israel together in partnership. Oh, we could do with a good dose of persecution here in the free West, couldn't we? (laughs) Not many agreeing with me. (laughs) One of the problems we have in the free West is the church is fractious and fractured. The church is is fighting amongst itself. Division over minutiae of doctrine. Division over over, uh, methodologies of worship. Little things in the final analysis. These things are not issues in Iran and Iraq and, and Egypt. And some of these closed countries in China and in, in, in Bhutan and, and, and other places like They're not issues. They have to focus on the very fact that are they going to be alive tomorrow to bear witness? And that brings them together. We are wrangling about nonsense. We need a good dose of persecution. Because I believe it will bring the church together like nothing else can. It produces and promotes partnership. Jesus says, blessed are you if you are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. Blessed are you. God, give me a church full of persecuted Christians. God, give me a persecuted church. Oh, you're depressed, aren't you? In my first pastoral charge in uh, Hisham near Morecambe, I would regularly, as we preachers do, come to a brick wall in preparation, trying to piece together a text or trying to put together a sermon. And in my study there, my first pastoral charge, so much expectation on my shoulders, I'd hit a brick wall. And so I'd, I'd get out of the study, 
and go for a walk along along Hisham Front and along Morecambe Bay. And uh, if you if you know the area, uh, I, there's a place called Hisham Head, where the the ruins of St Patrick's Chapel are there. It's a beautiful spot to sit and reflect and seek God for some kind of divine inspiration for the sermon. I regularly sit there, and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful spot. You've got, uh, you're facing north, of course, so you've got the backdrop of the South Lakeland Mountains. And on a beautiful day, it's crystal clear, and the sun glistens on, on the water in, in Morecambe Bay. It's absolutely beautiful. When the tide is in. When the tide is out, if you know Morecambe Bay, it's a muddy, muddy, soggy, horrible mess. I was sat there on one occasion, looking for inspiration, and the tide was out. And I'd spotted a fishing boat, unusually, because they were pretty clued up, these guys, but unusually who'd been caught by the Morecambe Tide. The Morecambe Bay Tide was, is a very difficult one. It has a rip tide. It's very difficult to predict. And they'd been caught by the tide, and they hadn't quite got back to shore. So we were stuck in mud. And I watched these guys and I thought, what were these guys going to do, these fishermen? Were they going to call the Coast Guard for some help? Or what were they going to do? They'd obviously had a, a catch of fish. It was important for them to, to redeem that, that fish, that catch. What were they going to do? And I, and I sat and I watched, intrigued. And these three fishermen jumped out the boat. They grabbed the rope. And they dragged that fishing boat ashore. Two hours it took them. Two hours. I was impressed by that. And the Holy Spirit said to me, Doug, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Friends, I've been in situations where, spiritually speaking, the tide is in. And it's glorious. As a minister of the gospel, you feel almost certain superfluous to requirement the holy spirit comes and you don't have to do anything really it's just a blessing it's glorious but i've been in situations when the spiritual tide is well and truly out what does the christian church need what does the kingdom of god need when the spiritual tide is out a bunch of christians moaning and wrangling amongst themselves about minutiae now, Christians who are prepared to jump out the boat and drag it ashore. Blessed are you, says Jesus. Blessed are you. If this morning, let's be honest, the spiritual tide is out here in South Wales. Uh, we've, known our, uh, we've known our hour of blessing. We've known our time of refreshing. But on the 9th of April 2017, the spiritual tide is out in South Wales. What does God need? What's God looking for? What's Christ looking for in Coypen Mine this morning? A bunch of moaning, groaning individuals? No, he's not. He's looking for us, each of us, to jump out the boat and drag it ashore. Pain with every step. Drag it ashore. That harvest of souls, it will be agony. Drag it ashore. That's what Jesus needs. Blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness. The promise, friends, 
Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Hallelujah. The kingdom of heaven. Oh, do you think, do you think our brothers and sisters who are being martyred more now than 20, 20 odd now, 24? Do you think our brothers and sisters are being martyred? Do you think the, do you think that they're bothered about the minutiae of doctrine? No. They're consumed with the will of God. They're consumed with the salvation of souls. They're consumed with, with the growth of the Christian church, the kingdom of God. My friends, theirs is the kingdom of heaven is the promise. That's the promise for us. Paul says in Romans 8.17, If indeed we share Christ's sufferings, in order that we also might share in His glory. I'm happy to share in His sufferings this morning. If it might mean, brethren, that payday one day, I will share in His glory. Hallelujah. For that payday is coming, isn't it? We will each of us stand before the throne of God and give an account for our lives, for the deeds done, that which we did in the body. And I won't be bothered on that day whether I accumulated wealth, whether I, I developed the theology, a pure theology that was embraced by the whole church. I won't be bothered that day, friends. I'll be bothered about whether I shared in His persecution, in His suffering. Because the promise to me is, Doug Atherton, Hey, you shared in my suffering. Come on. Come on, son. Come and share in my glory. Hallelujah. Come and share in my glory. Second Corinthians 1, 7, Paul says, And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in his sufferings, so also you will share in our comfort. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. It presents a challenge. By golly, it does. But oh, Father, forgive us, for often we are consumed with minutiae of doctrine. We are consumed with methodologies of worship. We are consumed with the, 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 the dotting the I and crossing the T's of a pure theological, biblical, ecclesiastical constitution. But Lord, these things in the final analysis won't matter. Have we shared in Christ's suffering? For if we have, then hallelujah, one day we will share in His glory. Amen.